that night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles to record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his assistant attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on a pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in the court, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man that the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the, man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him. This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and, just, and do just as you were suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have, been, you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him. This is, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything he had happened to him. Um, John's going to come up and speak to us now. We've had a, uh, a little taster of John. So uh, as he comes up this time, I'll uh, just ask you all to join me in prayer for John. Lord, we pray for John. We thank you for his talents, his skill, his mind. Uh, and we thank you for the words you've given him to speak to us. May he speak your words and may we hear from you today. May our hearts be open. May we be willing to be changed by you. I thought I'd better just start by introducing myself a bit. So I'm John, John Parker from Romsey Baptist Church. My wife, Sheila, sends her apologies for absence, if that's the right phrase. Um, she's involved in a dedication in our church this morning. She, otherwise, she would normally be here. Uh, you know um, our wonderful minister a little bit, Jonathan Beer. I think he was here sometime last year. And as you know, he's had... Um, He's got cancer, and things were going very well until a few weeks ago, and he's had to have a 10-day uh, radiotherapy treatment, um, which ended about 10 days ago. Um, he has been Beijing so great, 15, uh, 10 days in a row, which is quite tough. Um, <coughs> I don't know how that has gone. Um, and um, he's also on sort of long-term immunotherapy, but it, he, he's doing a fantastic job at our church. And I bring greetings 
from Romsey Baptist Church. We've got two boys, both in their 30s, um, and they have two children each. Um, and so we thought that was the end of the story until 10 days ago, um, our eldest son's wife announced that she was pregnant um, again with twins. <laughs> There's no history of twins in um, either side of the family, and so it came as quite a surprise. Um, and they're now thinking of building an extension. <laughs> One thing leads to another, doesn't it? Um, I spent most of my life teaching English in comprehensive schools in Kent and Hampshire, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and for the last 10 years, I've been a self-employed gardener in and around Romsey, uh, and thoroughly enjoyed that as well. Uh, but I retired from that just, uh, just before Christmas. Um, and so, uh, in a, there's obviously a, a lot else has happened, um, but that, in a nutshell, is, is a little bit about me. But we're not here about me, so let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we're here for you. Thank you that we're here to learn about you and maybe to learn a bit more about ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that will, your name be honoured and glorified in um, everything we do this morning. Amen. Last Saturday, I had a brief chat with John Bridger at our community cafe. Um, and I mentioned I'd be here this morning. He said, oh, good, they're a welcoming lot. And he was right. Um, and he also said they like good biblical teaching, which is what I like as well. And as um, has been mentioned already, I'm going to be looking at the general title of Finding God in the Small Things in Life, because that is my experience of being a Christian. I'm going to do it by looking at the book of Esther. And there's a PowerPoint coming up in a moment. Now, Esther is unusual for three reasons. Firstly, along with Ruth, it is one of only two books in the Bible named after women. Secondly, it is one of very few books in the Bible written not in the promised land. And thirdly, along with Song of Songs, it is one of only two books in the Bible that doesn't mention God. So I then ask myself the obvious question, why on earth is it in the Bible if it doesn't mention God? That seems quite odd to my mind, really. And so it's only this week it's piqued my interest, and I've done a bit of digging. Now, at this point, I need to, a little bit of honesty. What I'm about to say, I didn't know until this week, so I might be a few days in front of some of you, or I might be several years behind many of you. Does Esther mention God? No. But it's not as simple as that. In fact, what I'm about to say, I find really quite interesting. Although you'll not find the word God in Esther, in our modern English Bibles, in the original, the word Lord is actually there, but it's hidden. Jews have always loved playing with words, and they still do. And they are very fond of acrostics. Now, I'm sure you know what an acrostic is, beloved by English teachers. You put a word down the left-hand side of the page, and then words and phrases come um, away from, from that one. In the Christian circles, faith is the most common one. You have F-A-I-T-H, full acceptance in the past. And there are many other well-known ones like that. And the Bible's got lots of acrostics. In Psalms, 
they, they don't come out over as acrostic in English at all. But in, in Book of Psalms, lots of them are acrostic. Well, in Esther, there are four acrostics of Lord. So four times it says L-O-R-D, and then something which explains it. Once it actually says I am. So I am Lord. There are five acrostics in, um, in Esther. So why am I drawing attention to this? Because God's name is there in the original Hebrew, but of course we can't see it because we're reading it in modern English. Now, if it had happened just once or maybe twice, I might have been able to dismiss it as a coincidence, but, but five times it's got to be there on purpose. But why write it in a coded form? Because Esther was written in a, a time and place and a country when it was dangerous to mention the Jewish God or Lord. Now, the Jews would have seen these acrostics straight away and doubtless would have had a, a wry smile to themselves. But the locals, the Persians, modern-day Iran, wouldn't have noticed them at all. That's why it's written in coded form. We need to remember that at this point in their history, uh, they had been in exile and had been so for many years. And as I said a moment ago, it's one of very few other books, like Daniel, which are written entirely outside of the promised land. And these books give us a good indication of how the Jews behaved in foreign and enemy territory and a guide to how we should behave in such situations. So, to recap then, the word God and Lord isn't there very obviously, but it most certainly is there, and it's disguised so they wouldn't get into trouble writing about them. With all that's been happening in COVID for the last two years and in Ukraine for the last four weeks, I think it's only valid to ask the question, where is God? And that's a question we can ask in Esther as well. But he's there all the time. You just have to look. This is a bit of an aside, but it did cross my mind that the Jews have had to put up with uh, more in their lifetime than any other group of people. Why? Maybe because salvation is found in the Jew, in a Jew. Moses was a Jew, and he was saved by the basket of bulrushes. In, in Esther 3, Haman is going to try to kill all the, the Jews. The people were trying to kill Jews long before um, King Herod came along and Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Egypt. Hitler tried it, of course, 75 years ago. Jesus was a Jew. Anyway, back to Esther. I struggled to decide what Bible reading to have this morning because I really wanted the whole of Esther, which is mostly uh, a narrative. Um, and so I think I want us to spend a few minutes reminding ourselves of the bigger picture, what is going on in Esther. So the king was a chap called Xerxes. Funny old name to us nowadays. I'm just going to call him a king. And um, he, <coughs> he ruled a vast kingdom, but there was trouble brewing, and so he decided to host a conference for 180 days to decide to de how to deal with threats from neighboring countries. Now, as a teacher, I've been to many conferences in my life. Two, three days, I think, is the maximum. 
I cannot imagine a 180-day conference or catering team, I say. Everybody who was anybody was there, from the nobles, the, the officials, military leaders, no expense was spared. But not only were the great and mighty there, but also the ordinary locals were there, from the least to the greatest. There was food in abundance, and the wine flowed freely. When the seven days were over, and everybody was probably thoroughly drunk, the king sent for his wife, Queen Vashti, to come and dance for them. Now, Queen Vashti was young and pretty, and he wanted uh, her to show off. He wanted to show her off in front of his admiring followers. But Queen Vashti refused to come and dance, and that begins the whole story. And this refusal put the king into an embarrassing situation. He could easily lose face. If he didn't deal with his wife, you can guess what all the wives in the country were going to be, be up to in the next few months. If he couldn't control his own household, then all the men in the country wouldn't be able to do so as well. So what does he do? How does he exert his power? Well, he, he consults his trusted and doubtless male experts who instantly appreciate the dilemma that he's in. And they advise him to issue a decree that Queen Vashti must never enter his presence again, that her title should be given to someone more worthy, and that that was the end of their relationship. The king, silly man, agrees to this advice. Now, all the women here this morning, I hope that I can hear a little cheer for the independent-minded Queen Vashti. But in that culture, in those days, it was simply not the done thing. Remember, this book wasn't written in the promised land where God was worshipped. It's an account of what happened and not an account of what should have happened. We all know that the Bible is not a, a sanitized version of history. It's an account of the, the good and the bad and the ugly and the beautiful as well. It's what actually went on. The trouble is, the king found his, his bed rather cold, and he became increasingly lonely. So his advisors came up with a cunning plan, and that was to hold a beauty contest so the winner would become his wife. And it was serious business. The most beautiful women in the whole kingdom were brought together for 12 months of beauty treatment before the contest really began. I can remember a few years ago, I gave the talk at Romsey Baptist Girls Brigade for awards evening, and I started my talk with, the answer is 50 minutes, what is the question? Would anybody like to hear? Remember, context was Girls Brigade, so it's not the length of a sermon, um, the, the, the question was, the answer is 50 minutes, what was the question? Anybody want to make any guesses? Well, one girl put her hand up straight away, and it's, uh, it was um, how long a modern teenage girl spends every day on her makeup, look, and appearance. Only ever having had sons 
I thought the 50 minutes was rather a long time. 50 seconds would have been pushing it many a time for them. But can you imagine 12 months of beauty preparation? Anyway, the contest happens and the women are put under the care of a eunuch, a castrated male. As a bloke, I cannot think of anything less appealing. But it was a pretty good move, as this eunuch would have had no bad intentions. Incidentally, you might think that eunuchs are a thing of the past, but not all that many years ago. I was teaching a class of teenagers in Eastleigh, a Shakespeare play which had um, a eunuch in it. And at the end of the lesson, a Japanese girl um, from Japanese heritage told me on her way out, that her grandfather, who was still alive, in her grandfather's generation in Japan, they still had eunuchs. So it's not quite as old-fashioned as you might think. As you know, Esther wins a beauty contest, and the king proclaims a national holiday. But surely, I hear you ask, God can't support a beauty contest? Absolutely. But who said God supported it? I certainly didn't. Remember, this is an account of what happened in foreign territory, not what should have happened. Two more people to, to remind you of. Mordecai um, was uh, a Jew, he, and Esther was an orphan, and Mordecai had brought Esther up really as his own daughter. And Mordecai advises um, Esther to keep her beliefs, her, her Jewishness, quiet at first. Remember how dangerous it was in that place to, uh, to be a Jew. As time goes by, Mordecai overhears uh, two of the king's guards plotting to kill the king. Um, he tells Esther. Esther tells the king, giving the credit to Mordecai. Um, and the king investigates, finds it to be true. The two guards are executed. And the final character, of course, is Haman, the real baddie of the story. He is one of the king's favourites, and he hates all Jews. And when Mordecai refuses to bow down in front of um, Haman, Haman advises the king to kill all the Jews. Haman also offers a large uh, bribe to the treasury if the king agrees to this, because money talks. And in, a, in due course, in a sleepless night, the king reads some old diaries and is reminded that someone called Mordecai has saved his life and he recalls he'd never rewarded Mordecai and starts to put this right. Mordecai is honoured. Esther plucks up the courage to plead successfully on behalf of the Jews. The king then realised that Haman is the true villain, and Haman is hung on the gallows intended for Mordecai. Now, I, there's a lot more that happens in, in Esther, but that's it in three or four minutes. Everybody likes a good story. But this is much more than just a good story. I find God in the little things. I see God in the background, quietly ensuring that all the people are in the right places at the right time. If Vashti was still the queen and she was told that there was a plan to kill her husband, do you think that she would have told him? Unlikely. I think that she'd have help them to do it probably. There's no love lost between those two. I see God in 
the um, so-called wise advisors. Frankly, I think that their advice to the king to replace Vashti was awful advice. Vashti refused to be used as a pretty face, and good for her. The best advice they should have given was something like, your wife, she's an independent-minded woman, celebrate it, and tell her that you love her for who she is and not just for her looks. Mind you, if they had said that, it might have been the last advice that they ever gave. But I see God in this situation. Bad decisions can be made in order not to lose faith. Just think of Putin. I see God in the contrast between the advice these experts in the law gave with the advice that Mordecai gave to Esther to keep her religion quiet for the moment. We need to listen to sound advice from people who are willing to speak the truth in love. I see God in Esther and Mordecai not revealing their Jewishness at first. Why? Surely we must always be open and upfront about our beliefs. But if Esther had revealed to the king that she was a Jew too soon in the story, then I don't think that she would have been anything like as effective as she would become. Reveal her religion too early and it could have meant her death. Reveal her religion later and it will be used to save many lives. I see God in Esther winning the beauty contest. There's nothing wrong with beauty, but as we all know, it's only skin deep. Nowadays, if you're attractive or handsome, you might be cast as a, a celebrity or listened to. Not so easy for Esther, though. She might have been a, a stunning beauty, but she still had to wait 12 months for the next step to take place. We all need more patience. God has a plan for us if we are in the right place at the right time. I see God's hand in Mordecai overhearing the plan to kill the king. We find Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Now, apparently, this wasn't a particularly important or special place, but God was making, already making Mordecai familiar with those who were in authority, and this would become quite important later. Let's be clear, Mordecai was putting Esther into a dangerous situation, but he didn't just leave her to get on with it. I see God in this. Every day, Mordecai would be close by communicating with Esther as often as he could. I see God in Esther's exile. She was far from home, and yet she was used by God in a position of influence in a non-Christian society. And the book of Esther encourages us to go as far as we can to get a good position in the world as long as we remain true to our faith. Myself included, most of us here have never worked in a Christian environment. That's good. There's no sin in that. We're most definitely in the world. Perhaps there's somebody here this morning who's considering promotion. Great. Go for it. God is happy us to get as high as we can, providing we remain true to our faith. God can use us in, in high places so we can uh, let him put us where we can make advances like Esther did. 
I see God's hand in Mordecai discovering the plan to kill all the Jews. Had Haman's plans come to fruition, there's a risk that virtually all the Jews in the world would have been killed because the Persian Empire was so vast. So perhaps Jesus wouldn't be born. Now, I don't know. That's a theological question. We'll have to ask John Bridger, okay, because I'm not sure about that. But I see God in the little things in life. And I want to illustrate this with something that happened in our church recently. I've thought long and hard about those who are included, but hear me out, and hopefully you'll see my point. Not very long ago, I happened to take a, a morning service in our church. Now, the building wasn't particularly full that morning. Um, it was, we were still under some COVID restrictions, but not the worst of them. But there was a couple in church that morning who I'd never seen before. And I got chatting to them afterwards outside. They were from Kent. And the chap said that the message that morning was just what they needed for something that was happening in their church the following Friday. I didn't ask what it was. Now, I wish I could tell you now that my wonderfully inspired sermon um, resulted in the whole of Kent being converted the following weekend. But, alas, that's not, that doesn't happen, does it? Whoever had been taking that morning's service would have had the same subject as me, and so it wasn't me. When Jonathan was planning the series, <coughs> presumably Christmas time, um, he had no idea who would be there that morning, finding God in the little things. The couple thanked me for their earlier welcome. Now, I don't know who welcomed them that morning, but whoever it was, they turned up and they did their job well, finding God in the little things. But those on welcoming duty didn't just turn up at random. Somebody had presumably sorted out a rota maybe a year or two ago to make sure that every Sunday was covered. And that person wasn't thinking to themselves, oh, I'm going to make a difference to a couple's life in 2022. They were just doing their bit. Or perhaps there wasn't a rota because we were still under some of the COVID restrictions. Perhaps somebody just took it upon themselves to welcome this couple. Little did these welcoming people know that their small kindness was noted and appreciated. A chap called Jeremy was leading our worship that morning, and he and others uh, make sure that they have a group around them, like Alan has done today. And they do this every week. It's routine. But I don't think for one moment that this couple would have appreciated the service so much had there been no musicians who had got there early that Sunday morning to practice, finding God in the little things. Somebody, and I, again, I can't remember who, was upstairs on our, our sound desk to make sure that the mic worked and the service was going out on live stream, a bit like Keith is doing today. Now, I would rather have cheap tools than do anything to do with IT. This PowerPoint you see now has been done by my friend Vic. So if you're watching online, Vic, thank you very much. It's much appreciated. He does all, all my PowerPoint things for me. Um, again, um, it's all done by Rota, finding God in the little things. But interestingly, the chap knew one person there that Sunday morning, a lady called Janet. She's still with us. Forty years ago, he had been in Janet's Sunday school class. 
as it was called in those days. And Janet probably did this class every Sunday morning, whether she wanted to or not. But she did it. And 40 years later, here he is with all these people making sure that the service happened 120 miles from home, listening to the message that hit the nail on the head for him, finding God in the little things. Now, I wish I could tell you what happened the following Friday, but I can't. But that's so often what the Christian life is like, isn't it? We don't know the end. And that's the same with the story of Esther. Lots of little things all adding together. And if this rings a bell with you, keep doing whatever it is you're doing. Even if you think it's not going to save the world, it all helps. I want to end with a simple illustration. Now, I could have chosen somebody famous, but I've chosen a long-forgotten chap, and he's, he's called Mordecai, I am. The fact that he's called Mordecai is complete coincidence to the Mordecai we're talking about today. The chap I'm talking about in the photograph lived in the United States of America. He was a traveling preacher, and in 1934, he happened to be in Charlotte, North Carolina. A reluctant teenager heard him that day, and he became a Christian. The reluctant teenager's name? Billy Graham. Finding God in the little things. Now, I don't know people here this morning. There's no coincidence that you're here. Remember, sometimes God starts small. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the whole of the Bible is in Esther 4.14, when Mordecai says to Esther, and who knows but that you have come to this position for such a time as this. Absolutely. Who knows but that you are here this morning to hear this message about God starting small. To summarize this morning then, I would say that just as the actual name God or Lord isn't seen easily in Esther. Actually, he's there all the time, especially in the little things, finding God in the little things. Thank you for listening. Alan's going to introduce our next song, but um, the title of it is just brilliant. By faith, we see the hand of God. I don't, I don't know if I know it, but the word is, thank you, good choice. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>